Hello, and welcome to the Speaking Out podcast from the New Mexico Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Our goal is to highlight our programs and the amazing work that they're doing around the state, provide discussion around the topics of domestic violence, and create an environment of education and empowerment for anyone that may be experiencing domestic violence. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And this month, we're highlighting our staff members here at the New Mexico Coalition Against Domestic Violence. This episode features David Garvin, our Director of Battering Intervention Services and Systems Response. All right, well, thank you so much, David, for joining me today. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, when you started working with NMCADV, and what your position is that you do now? Well, there's a whole long list of questions right there. There. I started working for the coalition full-time on beginning of August of 2021. I have been working with the coalition for many years. I don't actually remember. It's been at least 10, uh, if not more, years that I've been associated with the coalition. known Pam Wiseman for a very long time, probably closer to 30 years. And just in terms of, I think, yes, the question, tell you a little bit about myself. My interest in the movement to end domestic violence goes back many, many years to when I was a volunteer at a crisis agency in the early 70s. And in the early 70s, there weren't resources for battered women like there are today. In fact, in the state that I grew up in, for the most part, there weren't even any battered women's shelters until the later part of the 70s. So in the early 70s, I worked at a crisis agency that worked with teenagers who were, the term we used back then was runaways, but we helped people in general who were kind of displaced. And one of the things that we did, it was never advertised. But one of the things that that organization did, and they're still around today, is they had a list of people who opened up their homes to shelter battered women and their children. There was no licensing involved. There was no site reviews. There was no, to my knowledge, there was not not even an application process. If you had an extra couch or a bedroom or a basement and you were willing to let women and children stay in your house, you were on the list. And we didn't we had zero training what to do with domestic violence. We had pretty good training on what to do with kids who were runaways, kids who were living out in the streets, people with drug and alcohol problems, because we were right next to an I mean, literally in the same office space as a drug and alcohol program. Early, early days of all of that stuff, drug and alcohol issues, domestic violence issues. So my the training that I had in the early 70s was if a woman needed shelter, look at the list. That was the extent of the training. And under the cover of darkness, we would whisk her and her children off to some stranger's house. And that was grassroots kind of underground railroad kind of work, working to get housing or temporary housing for survivors of domestic violence. The issue of domestic violence appeared in everything that I did after that. When I graduated from college and was working in downtown Detroit with a bachelor's degree in social work, again, working with 
primarily homeless population. The number one cause for homelessness for women and children is domestic violence. We had no training in domestic violence. My bachelor's degree contained no training or mention of domestic violence, but there I was working with survivors of domestic violence, helping them with housing, helping them access resources in the community, public or private. And one day a woman came in who had been physically harmed with such devastation that I had never seen before. I asked my supervisor, what can we do for her? What can we do to help her besides give her you know, bus tokens and a voucher here or there, that kind of thing? And my supervisor, who had a master's degree in social work, which qualified her to know nothing more than I did, because back in those days, master's in social work programs weren't talking about domestic violence either. She told me there's nothing you can do. These women are hopeless. They're helpless. They are just going to go back to their partner, their husband, their boyfriend who was harming them. And there's, it's really lost cause. I mean, talk about a, a bad message. And I asked, I asked, what about the men? Because the men would also, they would come looking for their family, but would try to do it undercover. You know, they would come in and say, I need to get my, my son or my daughter their medicine or their glasses. And they've disappeared. And I'm wondering if you can help me find them. And even though I still hadn't had any training in domestic violence, I think I knew enough at that point to know I wasn't supposed to answer those questions that, you know, they were fishing looking for like, oh, go try at the Battered Women's Service organization there because she's probably there trying to hide from you. Of course, I knew not to say that, but still hadn't had any training in understanding domestic violence. And it wasn't too long after that experience of having such unhelpful and dissatisfying analysis of what to do with survivors of domestic violence that I decided to go back to college, get a master's degree in social work. And this time I wanted to be talking about domestic violence, you know, I walked in the door and said, I want to, I want to study this. I want to focus on this. I want to do research on this. I want to you know, have this be my area of practice. Now we're in, in the mid eighties now. And really I got pushback. The, the university didn't want me to select that as an area of practice. And when I asked why, and when ultimately when somebody finally answered the question, I found myself in the in the dean's office having to explain my interest in this. And everyone basically said, you can't do that because nobody's done it. And you can't focus on working with perpetrators of domestic violence because nobody's done it, which seemed like even more reason to do it. And I pushed and pushed. And uh, ultimately, after meeting with the dean, they uh, relented or allowed me to do that. And so all of my interest since then has been around programming, working with perpetrators of domestic violence, primarily because in the early days, there wasn't a place for men to work in the, the what we call the battered women's movement. The only place that I could have worked would have been in working with the children. And I had done a lot of work with children at child guidance clinics and other kind of youth centers and learned enough to know that I wanted to go more to the core of the problem. I wanted to work at the epicenter of the problem because um, I, would, I would see what I thought was the good work that I had done with the kids undone once the kid went back to the home. So I wanted to affect more of a change that brought me to working with perpetrators of domestic violence. 
so for the last, well, since 1986, have been in one way or another developing programming, running programming, supervising programming, writing curriculum, training people, developing resources and networks to help others do this very important work. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. What do you feel is the most important aspect of your job now with the coalition? Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna answer your question in a couple of different ways because I think there's a number of different areas that I consider to be important. One of which, and I've, I've always said that it's great to learn from your own mistakes, but it's even better to learn from somebody else's. So if you can connect with somebody, whether that is as a trainer, a mentor, a supervisor, somebody who has experience, you can accelerate your programming, your skills, your knowledge, your resources by connecting with them. And I think for me, one of the things that comes with over three decades of experience is I can't say that I've made all the mistakes there are to make, but I've made enough to know what shouldn't be done, but even more so what should be done and what are promising practices and what are the elements of engagement and resource development for staff, resource development for the participants in the program. And then I think the next thing that comes to mind is to be able to connect people with access to information, the opportunity to come together and talk about you know, I'm looking for a tool that does this, or I'm looking for a policy that will help streamline things or will help clarify things. Those kind of opportunities of coming together. And I think just developing networks. The, the, you know, the latest, most exciting thing is the work that we're doing at the coalition around developing services for coordinated community response. And that is so exciting to be able to do something that is both a, a promising practice, but is also innovative in how we're going about doing it, that all of these positions will be under the umbrella of the coalition. So there'll be a lot of training, there'll be a lot of supervision, there'll be a lot of access to all of the things that I mentioned before about knowledge and skills and resources. But being able to be a part of that and have that help the already great work that's happening in all of our communities, but the aspect of bringing it all together and connecting the different parts of the system, I'm really excited about that. Well, that was going to be my next question was, what is some of the work that you're really proud of or excited about that's happening at the coalition? Is there anything else you wanted to add? I would say the things that we're doing, I think, are, are really lessons to other communities that, that we have these monthly meetings with what I'm calling core curriculums for the battering intervention programs, you know, the curriculum writers to come together for a, a monthly supervision meeting, be able to ask any questions that you want to about this particular model or that particular model, that we're doing that now with the Family Peace Initiative. We're doing that with the HEAL program. We're doing that with Women Who Use Force. There's a meeting that I hold where people can come and talk about anything they want to related to battery intervention programs. 
Again, whether that is a curriculum, it could be a particular exercise they're looking for. It could be policy related. It could be related to group work. I think one of the things that having a background in social work brings to doing this kind of work is to have a real deep and meaningful understanding of what is group work. So many times people will bring people together in a room and call it a group, but do individual kind of consecutive individual work with people in the room. That's not group work. Group work is much more synergistic. And I think that's one of the things that's exciting also. You know, you don't have to be a social worker to do group work, but being a social worker, having that background, the training helps me bring that as a resource to people, regardless of what their degree is, level of training, level of skill. It is, it's about how do you create that synergy within the room? And there's some very specific ways that we can, we can do that and help programs to do that. And I love doing that. So you may have already said this, but I'm going to ask anyway, and let, if you want to say something different, um, what part of your work are you most passionate about? I love training and, you know, I, I love being the trainer, but I also love bringing people together for somebody else's training. That is so strongly supported by the New Mexico Coalition, specifically for battering intervention programs and staff beyond that as well. But my focus is in that, uh, in that lane of working with those who cause harm. I love teaching, whether that, is, again, is me as the teacher or me as the one who's bringing the teaching into the, the room or into the community. I thoroughly enjoy that. And the opportunity to do that has been really without limits of what we can do now, especially with having the entire state trained during the pandemic to be able to use Zoom or other similar platforms to come together in ways that we would have only dreamed about in the past. Now there's, there's really not anything getting in the way of bringing people into an opportunity of training. So I, I love that. I love the idea of, of doing things that are exciting and innovative. And the coalition is, in, in my mind, is kind of on a nonstop innovative path that I, I think won't be stopped by anything or anyone. One of the things for me about training is I didn't have a great experience in, in my public school education. I was on one end of the spectrum, I'm sure not the strongest one of uh, the bell curve. And back in my days, teachers taught to the center of the bell curve. And to be engaging, especially with something that is so horrific and trauma-focused and, you know, it's ugly. Domestic violence is just ugly. So how do you take something that's so horrific and make it be interesting and exciting is a challenge that I love. So when I, when I train, I, I want it to be enjoyable. I want to have fun. I want it to be fun for other people. And just because what we're talking about is so gut-wrenching, painful, and devastating doesn't mean that we can't enjoy learning about something. And I think people tend to learn 
more when they're engaged. And focusing on just the trauma part of this doesn't keep people's attention for very long. But if one of the ways that I've learned personally and that I have learned that other people also learn is helping them to understand something new by helping having them understand something that is old. So basically, you take one thing that you know to learn something that you don't know. So learning through metaphor, learning through something that they're comfortable with to help them understand something they're not comfortable with is part of my teaching philosophy. So just because we're learning about something traumatic doesn't mean the learning about it has to be traumatic or dry. It's got to be engaging. It should it should grab you. It should hold your attention. It should make you think. It should make you wonder. It should make you... There's parts of this that will make you scream and that you can't unring that bell once you hear it and understand it, you know, the horrors of this. But you can also help people get creative about how to engage others, how to develop collaborative relationships around this, how to do that with people who don't want to be in the program. Most perpetrators, when they start off in the program, come into the program with some kind of external motivation. It's the court, it's their caseworker, it's the probation, parole, it's their job, it's any number of things outside of themselves. So it's it's the community's job to make the perpetrator, the one who causes harm, be in the program. But it's our job at the program to make him want to be in the program. And how do we do that? How do we do that in such a way that uh, every fiber of his being is saying, I don't want to talk about me. I'd rather talk about her or talk about alcohol or talk about parents or you know all these other things. But how do, how do we get people to engage and be curious about why am I doing this? What's, what's going on with my thinking that I've made this be okay? You know, because most perpetrators will say, what that guy did is wrong. What I did is a different story. So how do you, how do you develop that introspection and that kind of personal curiosity? And I think that's just a blast. Yeah, that's really fascinating. If you could change one thing for survivors in New Mexico, what would it be? Part of the answer to your question is in the work that we're going to be starting with our coordinated community response project will be having focus groups with survivors and i think it's it's critical to have survivors voices inform what we do what we know what we understand and really as a, a critical consumers of the systems that we've created you know there's a reason that Companies, profit, nonprofit, have uh, customer surveys, and hopefully, you know, they're, hopefully they're all good reasons. But you know, to to find out what did you think about our service? I have worked with a judge for many decades, and one of the things that she did, she's retired now. When she was on the bench, one of the things she did was, of course, she wasn't talking to survivors. She was talking to the people who were on probation, the offenders. She would say, you know, I've just signed off on your order of probation. Your case is closed. There's nothing that I can do at this point 
she and she would say this as the judge there's nothing that i can do at this point that would change anything with your being off probation but i do have one thing i want to ask you is i want you to tell us what you thought about your experience from start to finish with everything that you went through from being arrested you know if 911 was involved in the call and you had anything to do with that to probation to the judges to the prosecutors to the battering intervention program tell us what you thought about that and most of the time people would give her information occasionally somebody would say i you know i don't want to participate in that conversation but most of the time people would say i wish that i would have learned everything that i learned when i was in high school imagine how different my life would have been but i think your question about survivors is we need to find out what effect the systems are that we support that we endorse that we are engaging in a part of we need to find out from her you know what do you think about it is there anything that we could do that would be different or that we could do that would be better you know what would those things be and so having survivors voices inform the work that we're doing today and tomorrow based on their experiences with us yesterday i think is really key and really critical i also think that survivors deserve to know what is going to happen with their partners whether they're ex-partners current partners and if we as a system can clearly say this is what's going to happen you know he's going to be on probation for this long sent to a program for this long this is what to expect from his participation you know the idea of what we call a battering intervention program it makes a lot of sense to us who are in it but to somebody who's not in it what does it look like you know are are you making them sit in the corner of a classroom like the the bully in a classroom or what what does it look like what 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 does a group look like what kind of conversations do you have to give her access to that information she might choose to say i you know i don't really care or she may be very interested in kind of what to expect but i think just the opportunity to have the choice to know you know one of the things that we have to figure out in our state is somebody is put on probation for 12 months sent to a 52 session program how does that math work you know in many instances somebody might complete probation before they complete the program we've got to figure out solutions to that and it it shouldn't be a shorter program you know new mexico is a leader in the country with having the expectation of a 52 session battering intervention program other states have that as well but new mexico's been there doing that for quite some time now so we've got to figure out how to have somebody's oversight last the duration of the program that they're referred to and i think that's also kind of getting back to that truth in advertising what can she expect from the system should she be in contact with the program some programs have contact with the partners of the men in the program and uh, some some don't but what what can she expect from that as well if you could change one thing for programs in new mexico what would you want that thing to be i think in many ways the programs in new mexico 
are in a great position to have the opportunity, not all of them, but to have the opportunity to have a contract to help pay for services because we're, in general, working with the population, uh, often those who end up getting arrested or involved with the law and don't have the means to be able to kind of fight a case. We're working with a, a fairly impoverished population. So when it comes to paying out of pocket, for example, which many programs in other states, that's their only source of, of revenue. So I think we're in a great position there. However, it doesn't cover all of the, the costs of running a program. So I, in many ways, I think it's kind of like grade school teachers. You know, there's grade school teachers who are buying snacks for their kids out of their own pocket who, you know, before the start of the school year are working 8, 10, 12-hour days to make things happen. And I think in many ways, that same concept often is what BIPs face everywhere. You know, you've got a Essentially, you know, you're going to have a bake sale to make sure you can meet the budget this month. So I think it's incredible to work in a community that supports with funding like New Mexico does. We just need more of that to support that. And this is it's one of those areas of practice that it takes a lot of training. So the more training you put into a person the better they are, but that also, that's expensive. And even though in most cases, our member programs have access to training that doesn't cost them money, when you have turnover, you're starting from scratch with somebody who doesn't have that training. So to be able to to pay people well enough to retain them in the positions, ultimately and synergistically, is better for everyone. It's better for the programs. It's better for the service participants to be with somebody who's been around for a while, even if it's only for a handful of years. The idea of somebody transferring out before they hit that two-year mark, I think, can take a toll on a program. So if, if we could do anything to help programs be able to retain staff past that two-year mark, I think that would be a great thing. I think it's really easy to get spread thin in doing this work, whether it's on the survivor side or working with those who cause harm, because there's just so much that needs to be done, whether it's being pulled in to cover somebody else's shift or do an overnight shift or any of the number of things that you have to do when you're working in a nonprofit organization uh, to be able to take away from the important work of Developing your skill, developing your your knowledge to be able to share with others in programming. So I, I think just more of the work around supporting sustainable staffing models, sustainable programs. It's amazing that we've made it through the pandemic the way that we have, that every program stepped up, rolled up their sleeves, figured out how to do the technology, figured out how to help those who really didn't have access to the technology, even though we may have been learning ourselves, we were at least a couple weeks ahead of working with our service population to help them figure out 
this is what it's going to be like during this time. And without missing a beat, program stepped up to that unimaginable task of how do you deliver services virtually during this kind of hopefully once in a lifetime event. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And so I would love to know if you could choose one aspect of awareness to highlight, what would it be and why? I guess I would want the awareness to be that perpetrators don't look like what you think they look like. And that is whoever is listening to this. They look like your brother. They look like your father. They look like your best friend. They look like your coworker. They look like the guy behind you or in front of you at the checkout lane at the grocery store. They look like the guy who sold you your refrigerator. They look like the guy who worked on your car. They look like the guy who is wearing a white lab coat asking you to stick out your tongue while he uh, puts a tongue depressor in your mouth. They look like the guy who has a master's degree, a PhD, a high school diploma, dropped out of school, that there is no type of person that you can look at. There's no demographic. There is no anything that you could say, this is what a perpetrator of domestic violence looks like. And just because you don't know that's what they're doing behind closed doors doesn't mean they're not doing it. I think it's really easy to get lulled into some kind of false sense of security. It's similar to what people say and think about drug and alcohol addicts. That, you know, the alcoholic is somebody who wears a trench coat and sleeps in the gutter and, you know, wakes up urinating on themselves. And chances are, if you are intoxicated, wearing a trench coat, sleeping in a gutter, you probably have a problem with alcohol. But the other 99.9% of addicts look like everybody else in the rest of your life. There's not a, a picture that anyone could paint of what the stereotypical perpetrator of domestic violence looks like. And in fact, that would also be kind of counter to how perpetrators get through life. They get through everything by being charming, not by being obnoxious. So if, if you think well, the perpetrator of domestic violence is just some obnoxious guy. That's probably just an obnoxious guy, right? It's the perpetrator of domestic violence is going to be the one that seems like he's just a really nice guy. He's really attentive, or he's really smart, or he's really caring, or he pays a lot of attention. Whatever it is, he's not going to manifest those things he's willing to do in the early parts of the relationship. And that's also straight from the mouths of those who've caused harm who talk about how do you know when it's okay to cross that line and do or say something that is harmful. And they, they talk about that kind of comfort zone of figuring out where her tolerance is for his behavior that wouldn't be tolerated before. So it's, you know, typically it's not going to happen on a first date. That's not what we're talking about. He's going to insert himself into her life in a way that will have some kind of dividends, you know, that she'll say yes to a second date or, 
you know, yes, uh, let's go out to lunch again or, you know, whatever that is. He wants to have that be a good investment. And it's not a good investment to behave poorly on your first date. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is the charming personality that gets them, you know, in the door, that gets them to have people on their side instead of, you know, their partners who they're abusing. And yeah, and that's hard. That's hard to navigate because you can't say to somebody, watch out for the guy who's charming, because really there are men who are rightfully, whatever that means, rightfully charming, not just who they are. They're naturally charming. They're, they're caring men. So how do you figure this one is doing this? You know, this is the, the wolf in sheep's clothing, and this is the sheep in sheep's clothing. How do you do that? And I, I think creating a place or a space for, for women to have those conversations who blame themselves for not seeing that he was a wolf in sheep's clothing at the onset. And that speaks to how, how good he is at hiding this, to be able to hide in plain sight of this just seemed like somebody who really cared. You know, they, they asked me questions. They seemed attentive, you know, whatever it is that that is part of this thing that we call dating, you know, that you get to know somebody and they seem like a good person. He's working to seem like a good person. Well, I think also there's, there's no way, there's no way to know. Yeah. It's so challenging because I think media romanticizes behaviors that are maybe a little like red flaggy and problematic where we think, oh, that's romantic that he's jealous or that's romantic that he's showing up at your place of work after, you know, you had a a date and you didn't tell him where you worked. (laughs) There's a lot of issues with unhealthy romanticism that can really skew our ideas about what's problematic and what's not. That's, that's a big aspect of awareness I would love to, to work on, personally. You, I think you used the word fairy tales, that fairy tales are just full of men who don't have to do anything, and the women will just drop everything. And, you know, if, if you're a frog, somebody can come along and kiss you, and then, you know, then maybe she can make you be a good man. You know, if she just does A, B, and C right, you know, there's dogma, whether it's in the, the fairy tales that we tell children, the, there may be dogma around certain religious beliefs that say what women and men are supposed to do. Yeah, we, we've got a lot of work to do to, to change this. My last question was just, how do you take care of yourself? I'd say family, just beside myself in love with my grandchildren, spending time going on vacations with them going to swimming lessons, having a a deep and powerful love with my wife, Nancy, just, you know, spending time together and spending time by myself, you know, sitting out in the backyard and looking at the trees is a great way to unplug. And so if I can get away and spend time looking at the lake and in the northern part of the state, I love to do that. Going for a walk around the block, I love to do that. You know, having that that balance, but it, it's not something that I can kind of take for granted. It's something that always needs always needs work. It's easy. It's very easy to not take care of yourself. It really is. Yeah, I 
just want to thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to me and to help us get to know you a little bit better. And yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. You're an absolute delight to spend time with too. Oh, thank you. We want to thank our programs that work tirelessly across the state to support those affected by domestic violence. Each and every staff member, advocate, therapist, and supporter is important. We appreciate you. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, there is help available. Please call the hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE or 1-800-799-7233 or visit their website on a safe device at www.thehotline.org. Love our conversations? Make sure to subscribe, rate, and share our podcast. You can submit questions and feedback to rochelle at nmcadv.org. Thanks for listening in.